0: So looking at different pictures from spring break trips, I know a few people were able to go skiing over spring break, go snow skiing, not water skiing, uh, not yet anyway, but but go snow skiing over spring break. My family, when I was growing up, junior high, high school, we would try to go snow skiing once a year if if it worked out, love to snow ski. Our go-to place was Wolf Creek in Southwest Colorado. You can't stay right there at the mountain. You have to drive up from Pagosa Springs or South Fork, but you can almost always count on good snow at Wolf Creek. Uh, It's just a great mountain. It's kind of a laid-back feel. So we would go to Wolf Creek. When I was a senior in high school, we went on one of our regular trips right around around, uh, spring break, went snow skiing there at Wolf Creek, and we got to the very last run of the last day. We just begged to go up for one more run, and we were going in this area that was a little bit off the beaten path, and we saw a sign that said, Danger Cliff Ahead, uh, which to a group of high school seniors might as well have been a magnet. Uh, Like, go this direction, like we're gonna go this direction. So last run of, of our trip, we see Danger Cliff Ahead, and so we ski up there to the cliff, and no joke, it's a cliff, like it is one of those places you ski up to and it just falls off for 20, 25 feet straight down. To this day, I stand by the fact that if we would have just skied off that cliff, everything would have been fine. Like, it would, have, it would have gone well, we were good skiers, we could have made it, but we thought to ourselves, in our teenage moment, we're gonna do the right thing. Like, our parents are gonna be so proud of us, we're gonna take our skis off, and we're gonna walk around the edge of this cliff and put our skis back on and, and keep going. Would have been a great plan, Except, as we take our skis off and begin to go around the edge, one of our friends falls off the cliff. Right off the cliff, down, down below. Friend number two, panics, also falls off the cliff. So now we have two people that we've lost over this cliff. We ski around to check on them and it, it's a pretty serious situation, like, we, we need help, except we're in a really hard-to-get-to place, and so we think, okay, somebody stay here with them, somebody else is going to ski further down, we're going to find the ski patrol, they're going to get up there. I would never interacted with the ski patrol before where they actually have to bring the stretcher up and get them down, but it felt urgent at this moment, so we're going to find the ski patrol, and they came up, did an incredible job, got our friends onto the, uh, to the mat and hooked them up to the uh, snowmobile and, and headed down, at which moment we realize, oh no, our parents are at the bottom and they don't know where we are and they're about to see some of our group come by on these stretchers with snowmobiles. So then the challenge becomes, can we ski fast enough to get to our parents before they see these people come by on stretchers? No. No, we did not. No, the snowmobiles got there before we got there. And needless to say, we had some explaining to do about why we were on a part of the mountain that required going over cliffs. But I can tell you, and some of you have been this situation in, in ways that are not funny at all. You've been in the situations where you think, I need help, I need it now, this is urgent, we've got to get these people to help. Mark chapter two, verse one. Mark chapter two, verse one, what do you do when you're in an urgent situation and you need to get somebody to help. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, kind of home base for Jesus, this is where he would go back to in Galilee in a lot of his ministry. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Probably not his home, probably the home of Simon Peter, uh, where often he would go back to and connect. We know he's been a part of this, this is the area he's been. Previously, he's been out in the wilderness, Separated from everyone because there was so much difficulty with his ministry. But now he's coming back into the city of Capernaum. Verse 2. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now those of you who are claustrophobic can get the feeling of this scene. That here's Jesus in this home, not a large home. Very, very small home, most likely. And people are crowded around. They're blocking the door. Fire marshal would have been panicking at this point in the ancient world. This is a bad situation. In this area, all these people are gathered around there. And what's Jesus doing? It says he was preaching the word to them. When it says he's preaching the word, he's preaching about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He's preaching about the kingdom that's to come. He's preaching repent and believe in this gospel. This is the word that he's been preaching. And the reason it matters here is because we're about to see a miracle story. But this miracle that you're about to see in Mark chapter 2, it has to be interpreted, it has to be seen through the preaching that Jesus has been doing. When Jesus preached and when Jesus did miracles, they were the two sides of the same coin. So we know he's been preaching the word. He's telling them this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. This is why you need to repent. This is what you need to believe in. And then he's going to show them what it looks like. So when you read about this miracle story that we're going to read about, think about it as a display of everything Jesus has been preaching up to this point. Verse 3. Actually, let me say one more thing about verse 2 before I go. and We may have switched slides. If you guys can jump back a slide. If you like to take notes in your Bible, at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, there's this framework we need to be aware of in Mark, and I don't think I've talked about it yet, but I'm gonna talk about it several more times over the next year as we go through Mark. When you read the Gospel of Mark, you're always looking for the crowds, the religious leaders, and the disciples. Really, number one, you're always looking for Jesus. You're always asking ourselves, what does this teach us about who Jesus is? What does this teach us about the ministry of Jesus? So in your Bible, the title page for the Gospel of Mark in your Bible, you can just write Jesus, crowds, religious leaders, disciples. Because each of these groups of people are going to be key in how they respond to Jesus in different ways. And this is really the first story to see it clearly and then over the next several months, next year, we'll try to point these out as we go along. But when you read Mark, you're looking for those three groups, and especially you're looking for how it teaches you about Jesus. So I wanted to frame that because the crowds in Mark, they're always an audience for Jesus, but they never respond to Jesus in faith. In fact, the crowds in Mark tend to just get in the way. (laughs) Like, they, they tend to obstruct access to Jesus. They tend to struggle with belief. They, they tend to want Jesus for what he can give them, not for who he is. And so, as we see the crowds playing out, in Mark, you don't want to be part of the crowd. You want to be part of the disciples. That's what this is trying to show us. All right, verse 3. So, you have this crowd that's gathered around, and then they came. A group of people came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. So we've seen already in the Gospel of Mark how people who are struggling with leprosy and other diseases, they come to Jesus, but here's someone who, even though they would want to get to Jesus, can't get to Jesus on their own, literally helpless to be able to make their way to Jesus even though they need his healing, they need his ministry, they can't get there on their own. And so we find out that they are going to be brought by these four men, carried by four men. The contrast that you're meant to see in this verse is the contrast between the crowd that's huddled around Jesus and then a small group of four people who are carrying this map that the paralytic is lying on. Here's a good reminder. A good reminder for church, a good reminder for your life. Jesus can do so much more through the active faith of four people Than he ever could through this huge crowd that's gathered around just because of what they would want to give, what they would want to get out of it. Jesus doesn't need crowds to do the work that he's called to do. He works through these four people who are carrying this map, bringing this person who is helpless before him. Verse 4 it says, When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, this is one of our favorite vacation Bible school, uh, Sunday school stories. When you think about this idea of it's so crowded, they can't get their friend to Jesus, so what do they do? They go up on the roof. I don't know about you, but I don't like to go on the roof at my house. Uh, I try to avoid the roof of my house, if at all possible, because of once I get very high up, Things get really dizzy, and I don't need to be up on, on the top of the roof of my house. But you have to think about these roofs at the time. The way that houses were built, it would have been a flat roof that you accessed by an outdoor staircase. Sign me up for this kind of house. If you've ever lived in the southwest part of the U.S. or traveled in that area, these flat-top adobe houses that you would go up an exterior set of stairs, and you could access the, the roof. And it was used very similar to how we would use our backyard patios. It was a place to get some fresh air. It was a place to hang your clothes. It was a place just to go and spend some time by yourself. It was a place to go out and eat. They would even sleep outside on the roof when when the weather was nice. And so you would access the roof. And the way the roof was made, you had these solid beams that would go across and sit on top of the outside walls. So you had these beams that would go across, they would sit on top of the outside walls, and then there was this cross-hatching approach where sticks would be laid across, and you would have essentially branches that are put up there, and then they would put mud on top of the house, and they would roll the mud to make it firm and provide that firm top to the house, which meant every year... It was somebody's job in the house to remud the top of the house. I mean, imagine in the springtime, if when you were doing your work in the spring, instead of putting new shingles on, your wife says to you, hey, honey, it's time to go up to the roof and put the mud back on. Like, that's what would happen every year. Go up, put the mud on, roll it out, make it firm. Which tells us, when these guys get on top of the roof, this is not an easy job. They are burrowing out this mud that was on top of the roof, They're moving aside the sticks and the debris, and then they're going to lower this paralytic man down into the house. This is dirty work. This is difficult work. In some ways, this is dishonorable work. They're putting themselves out there, maybe to be made fun of, uh, maybe to be disrespected because of what they're doing. Not to mention, how angry are you if you own this house and some guys have climbed on top of your house? Uh, Those of you, who have experienced being in your attic and then missing your step and stepping through your ceiling anybody willing to admit to that anybody willing to admit yeah okay so if you you should identify really well with this story that's the exact setup that's happened here is they've found the place they've made it into the house that's the situation going on here verse 5 when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic son Your sins are forgiven. What a remarkable verse in your Bible. That here, Jesus sees not just the faith of the man on the mat, not just the faith of the paralytic, he's responding to the faith of this group of friends. And their faith is not just doctrine. Let's remember from the New Testament, faith is not just I believe the right things. Faith is active trust in the fact that I can bring all of my cares before Jesus. Faith is actively putting to work the fact that I trust in Jesus above all else. I need to get to him with my greatest needs. And Jesus sees their faith, the group of this men that have brought their friend to Jesus, and he says to them, what? Son, your sins are forgiven. What's going on there? Like, his greatest need in this moment seems to be the fact that he can't walk And yet Jesus, his very first response is, your sins are forgiven. This is like showing up to urgent care and the person there wants to talk to you about the trauma of your childhood and talk to you about how you're treating your kids and talk to you about how you're doing at work and you're like, I don't need that. I need physical help right now. Why are you talking about these other things? Uh, Don't don't come to me in my office and, and schedule a counseling appointment if you have a serious physical issue. Call 911, go to the urgent care, do what you need. But Jesus is locking the two of these together. Here's someone who has a physical challenge, they're dealing with the fact that they can't walk, and Jesus responds and says, son, your sins are forgiven. What's going on there? Well, let me just tell you there's a lot going on there. Uh, There's a lot of biblical theology being worked out here. And, And I've put together a document that lays out a big overview of the biblical theology of sickness and healing and forgiveness, way more information than would be appropriate on a a Sunday morning sermon. But if you would like access to that, if you would like me to send you that document, I know that's not for everybody, that's not everybody's taste, but if you'd be interested in that, just send me an email and and I'll send you, it's about an eight-page document that, that works through the biblical theology of sickness and sin and forgiveness and healing and some of those topics. Uh, let me know if you're interested in that, and, and I'll send it to you. But I'll, I want to walk you through some of the points right now because it's such a big deal. And, and let me just tell you, this section of the sermon, it, it'll be a lot more meaningful and will make a lot more sense if you'll personalize it. Think about sickness in your own life. Think about family members and friends who are facing physical difficulty and sickness and disease right now and the desire to see that healed. We live in a world where so many people are struggling with that. We've lived through the last two years. We know what this feels like. So if you think about, you have this physical need, whatever it is in your life or your family, so whatever you personalize this as, and you think, I need to get to Jesus because he can help me with this physical need. He can help me with this sickness and you get to Jesus, and his first response is, child, your sins are forgiven. What's happening there? Well, first off, we have to remember, at the time of the Bible, the reality of sickness and sin are linked together much more than we would in our modern world. In our modern world, if you're sick, it's just a physical problem. Like, just just physical, let's just treat it with some medicine, we'll do surgery if we need to, but it's purely physical. At the time of Jesus, No one thought that way. Sin and sickness were linked together. And you see that throughout Scripture, how we know because of sin, sickness and disease and death came into the world. Now what we also know from Scripture is not every individual sickness is directly linked to an individual sin. In John chapter 9, the people want to know why the man was born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, well, you totally misunderstood how this works. So hear me say right now, if you're sick, if you're suffering from disease, if you have family members who are suffering, it does not mean automatically that sickness is the result of a specific individual sin. Sometimes we face sickness and disease because we just live in a world of brokenness and sin. However, the Bible also says sometimes sickness and sin do go directly together. You find that in a place like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, hey, you're sick? Because you've been taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He, he links those two together. So what's Jesus doing here in Mark chapter two? Jesus is getting to the root of the problem. This man's greatest need is not being able to walk. His greatest need is that his sins would be forgiven. And can I tell you this morning, whatever you are facing in life, physically, emotionally, financially, Your greatest need in life is not for that surface issue to be dealt with. Your greatest need in life is that your sins would be forgiven, that you would be made right with the God who created you and loved you and sent his son to die for you. That Jesus is taking this very legitimate need, this desire this man has to walk, and he's going below the surface and he's addressing the root issue here. And it's this reality that we live in a world of sin and difficulty and brokenness. Isaiah chapter 35 In in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 35 says that when the Messiah comes, when the servant of God comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And then one of my favorite places where you find this in the Bible is Psalm 103. Psalm 103, many of you will recognize these verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are his benefits? Who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. We live in a world, and this is so important to get, to understand the New Testament, to make sense of the Christian life, we have to get this. We live in a world Where because of the death of Jesus on the cross and because of his resurrection, the power of sin and death has been defeated. Absolutely been defeated. We also live in a world where the reality and the effects of sin and sickness and death still exist. And so we live in this tension where we desire physical healing as a good gift from God, we want that healing to come. Whether it comes through a miracle or a medicine, wherever that comes, we desire that physical healing, but we realize that physical healing is not ultimate healing. Because we know that Jesus has ultimately overcome sin and death, and one day that will be revealed, one day that will be fulfilled completely. Every physical healing, whether it's a miracle that happens in your family, or whether it's a good gift of medicine or surgery, and there's healing that happens in your life, every physical healing that happens in this world is ultimately temporary. It's a good gift, I'm not downplaying it at all, it's a really good gift. But we realize, and, and many of you could attest to this with, with friends or family members, you can be physically healed in this life and still not be completely healed spiritually or emotionally. You know people who have experienced physical healing and you think it would turn them back to the Lord, to trust the Lord, and it doesn't. Physical healing is a picture of God's grace, a picture of what he wants to do in our life, but it points us to a greater healing that you're going to see in in the rest of this chapter. Verse six, look look at the next verse. Verse six says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, here's the religious leaders. And all they can come up with is this critical approach to Jesus of how can he do this? This is something that only God can do. Yes, that's exactly the point (laughs) that Jesus is trying to make. This is something that only God can do that God would be able to forgive sins. But they're so bothered that Jesus is seeking to do this Verse, verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, verse 9, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, don't move too quickly past that verse because there's a question here. Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and take up your bed and walk. It's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove that in an in a objective, physical, immediate way. I could look at somebody and say, Your sins are forgiven. Does it mean that it's happened? But if you say to someone, Hey, rise, take up your bed and walk, and they weren't able to walk before, you better be sure that they can get up and walk because otherwise you're going to be like a fool. Uh, You better be the faith healer that planned that thing ahead of time because otherwise it's not going to look good for you. It's easier to look at someone and say, your sins are forgiven because there's no outward way to prove whether or not it happened. So what happens in the next verse? Well, verse 10, but that you may know, Jesus wants these religious leaders to know that the Son of Man has authority, there's the word for the Gospel of Mark. Who has the authority on earth to do these things? Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. All right, grab your biggest highlighter, underline it four or five times, you cannot miss this part of the Gospel of Mark. How does Jesus refer to himself here? He calls himself the Son of Man. I know that could feel like a throwaway phrase, but it is not. It is packed with theology. What is happening here is that in his ministry, Jesus uses Son of Man as the way that he refers to himself. So the Gospel of Mark, he'll be called the Son of God, he'll be called the Messiah, the Christ, other things. But when he refers to himself, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. I don't know what your personal rules are about nicknames, Uh, Whether you're allowed to give yourself a nickname or a true nickname has to come from somebody else, but but that's essentially what Jesus has done. He's given himself this nickname, he's given this way that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Why does he do that? The reason he does this is because the Son of Man is able to pick up these very important references from the Old Testament about the work that God would do in sending the Messiah. It's able to pick up those references, but it doesn't carry a lot of the connotations that other phrases would have carried that would have got Jesus into a lot of trouble before he was ready to go to the cross. So where this phrase comes from is Daniel chapter seven. So when you see Jesus refer to himself as the son of man, he's picking up this phrase from Daniel seven and he's going to use it as his way to refer to himself in his ministry because it'll allow him to do his ministry without revealing too much. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And then listen to this next verse about the son of man. To the son of man was given dominion, we could even say authority, to pick up that mark, mark idea. He was given authority, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is saying, "I have all authority to bring the kingdom of God into this world, and the kingdom of God is going to come through my suffering, through giving up my life." Back to Mark chapter two, verse 12. What happens at the end of this story? He rose. That's good. (laughs) That's good. And it's also kind of picking up the language that's going to be pushing ahead toward the resurrection. But this man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Uh, Whether he, I don't know, in my mind, I want to imagine him like showing his bed to the religious leaders, like kind of a take that. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching a lot of NCAA basketball the last couple of of days, but you can imagine this paralytic man as he walks out and all these religious leaders have been questioning whether this could happen or not. He probably showboats a little bit uh, on on the way out with his bed. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying we never saw anything like this. What a cool phrase. The ministry of Jesus is shown God receives glory because Jesus is both able to heal this man and he forgives his sins. He releases him to be able to go and live the life that God created him to live. Two points I want you to take away this morning. Two points. If if you're taking notes, we've worked our way through the verses, I want you to take two points home with you. Number one, so simple, have faith in the Son of Man. Put your faith in the Son of Man. Not that you just know this Bible story, not that you attend a church, not that you grew up going to church, that your active trust, you are taking your life and you are laying it before the one who is the Son of Man, the one who has authority over sin and sickness, the one who has overcome death and the grave, the one who gave himself for you so that you would have life and have life eternally. Have faith in the Son of Man. If you're here this this morning and you're not a Christian, you're unsure about your relationship with God, you're unsure about your eternity, I just want to be straightforward with you. The most important thing that you would do today is that you would have faith in the Son of Man. You would have faith in the one who came to bring the kingdom of God and who calls to you and says this is the good news. Repent, turn from yourself. You don't have to hold your life together You're not the one who can heal yourself. You can't deal with your past, your sins, or your brokenness, but I can. Believe in me. Trust me. If you have questions about that this morning, if you say, I don't understand exactly what that looks like, please don't leave this place without talking to someone. You can talk to a friend or family member sitting close to you. There's going to be a time at the end of the service or when the service is over that you can come up and talk to me about it. But you need to think to yourself, Where is my hope in life? There are things in my life that I cannot deal with on my own. Where is my hope? The most important thing that you could pull from this kid's Sunday school vacation Bible school story, the most important thing you can pull away is that I have faith in the Son of God. Is that true in your life? Do you know that that's true? Are you unsure about that? Do you have questions about that? This morning is a chance to respond to that. And if you hear that question, you say, yeah, absolutely I have faith in the Son of God. I have before and I still do. Well, here's your point, number two. Be a friend with faith. So in this story, you have the crowds who are gathered around Jesus because of what they want to get from Jesus. They want to be a part of the crowd. They want to fit into the crowd. They're just along because Jesus is the popular guy and this is the thing to do. The crowds are very passive They're on the edge, they're in it for what they can get out of it. The religious leaders, judgmental, critical, always looking for what might be wrong with the situation. But then you have these disciples, these these four, that know their job is to get their friend to Jesus. And they're gonna do the hard work of getting their friend to Jesus. Be that person (laughs) in your life. When you think about church, you're not coming to church just to be part of the crowd, and I beg you, don't come to church to be one of the religious leaders who's just critical and judgmental of what everybody else is doing. Come because you want to get your friends to Jesus, because that is your desire. You say, I'm gonna carry this bed. We're gonna get you, I know you're hurting. I know you're broken. I know you feel helpless, but I know where to go, and it's to get you to Jesus, and you're gonna carry the bed. And it reminds us, it reminds us that evangelism, sharing your faith with people, we think of that oftentimes as just an individual thing, which makes us terrified, which means we just don't do it. (laughs) Because you're like, I don't know how to tell my friends about Jesus. I'm terrified to do it. This story reminds us that evangelism is often a group activity. It's not just you trying to get your friend to trust in Jesus. This is the fact that here these four guys have gotten around. They said, we're going to do this together. Most people don't trust in Jesus because of one solitary conversation. It's multiple people speaking into their lives. This is true of parenting. You say something to your kids, and it goes right over their heads, or they glaze their eyes over. Person X says the same exact words that you said, and all of a sudden, they're the most brilliant person on the planet. And it's not because what you said was wrong. It's just sometimes we have to hear it from somebody else. That we're in this together trying to point people to Jesus. Who carried the map for you to get to Jesus? Who carried the map for you? Who, who was part of your story? How are you being involved in helping other people get to Jesus? Take the, take the pressure off yourself. We're not the savior in the story. We're the friends who have faith who want to get their friend to Jesus. And this continues beyond evangelism. This this is true of discipleship. Think about the times in your life. Oh, man, this is so helpful. Think about this for a second. Think about the times in in your life when you've been low on faith. Like the gas gauge for faith in your life was super low. But you had people who had faith for you in that moment. Like, they stepped in and said, I know you're struggling in life. I know you don't have a lot of faith right now, but I do know Jesus is there. I do know that he is able, and so we're going to come alongside you, and we're not going to let you fall back at this moment. We're going to help, and we're going to get you to Jesus. Your friends, teenagers, think through this. Your friends, whoever you are, whatever stage of life, if your friends knew you were hurting, and they picked up the mat— where would they carry you to get help? And if the answer to that question is not Jesus, I would really reevaluate who's carrying my mat. (laughs) I would reevaluate who's in my life as my friends. Because when we're struggling with faith, we need people around us who are going to come and say, I know where to go, I'm going to get you to Jesus. This helps us think about our prayer list. Think about that relationship between physical healing and spiritual healing. For most of us, If God answered yes to every prayer request we're praying right now, a lot of people would be physically healed, but how many people would be spiritually saved? What does our prayer request look like? I heard someone say one time that a lot of church prayers are about keeping Christians out of heaven and not keeping unsaved people out of hell. A lot of our prayers are designed to keep Christians from getting to heaven. Like, God, help them feel better physically. And our prayers are not about trying to keep unsaved people out of hell. God, we know that there's a deeper issue going on here. What are you praying about? What are your priorities in life? Am my hope from this little kid's Sunday school lesson today, this Vacation Bible School lesson, that you would say, I want to be a friend with faith. I want to be someone who knows I'm going to help get people to Jesus because he is able to overcome all Of the brokenness and evil in this world and he has overcome sin and death we can trust in him the way we're going to end our service today is i'm going to pray over you and our worship team is going to come back up here and they're going to sing a song over you they're going to teach you a song about how the world needs jesus and that we would be used in helping getting people to jesus and so they're going to sing the song for you they're going to teach the song to you And then part of the way through the song, they're going to invite you to stand and sing the chorus. As they're singing, as they're teaching you this song, think about this question. Who am I helping get to Jesus? Who am I helping get to Jesus? Where is my faith found? And then when we stand and sing together, if you're here this morning and you need someone to pray for you, we're going to be right here. We'd love to pray with you about what it means to have faith in Jesus. Let's pray together right now, and then the worship team is going to come. Father, thank you for this Bible story. We just, we can relate so, so much to this idea of here's these friends who want to get their friend to Jesus. Crowds are in the way. All the religious people are just questioning and not helping, but they know that Jesus is the answer. They know the world needs Jesus. And God, thank you that Jesus is the Son of Man who came to bring your kingdom, who came to overcome sin and brokenness and death. And God, thank you that because of him our sins can be forgiven. God, I pray for anyone here who's uncertain about their relationship with you, uncertain about where they would spend eternity if they were to die today. God, there are people here who are hurting so badly physically. God, they've been through so much physical difficulty, people watching at home, who are at home simply because physically they're not able to be here. And God, we want to see that healing happen. Nothing, nothing about this passage takes away from the incredible gift of physical healing, but it does remind us there's a greater healing that you've called us to, and that we would know what it is to be made right with you and to bring our friends to you. God, use this song. Use this time of prayer. Put people on our minds who we know need to be brought to Jesus. And God, that you would use us in that process. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.